crashing because it kept crashing. So, nonetheless, we got one. We'll see if it works or not. But really glad that everyone is here this morning. I want to bring to your attention two words. You probably know them because they're used in a lot of different scenarios in life, a lot of different things. This word being objective contrasted with something that is subjective. And so I'm going to give you a second to think about, okay, what's the difference between something being objective and something being subjective? Okay, everyone's got a difference in their head, right? When I was in college and I was studying PR, we had to take a lot of journalism classes. So things for writing in newspapers and magazines. And this particular chart comes from that because it is important when you are writing things. And so it asks questions like, objective... Facts are based upon, here it is, when you observe measurable facts. You can see it, you can feel it, it is not up to one's interpretation, but it is what the facts are. That is something that is objective, and so you'll find that in encyclopedias. Like, what day did the U.S. get its independence? Well, that is a little bit subjective, but... July 4, 1776 is when the Declaration of Independence was signed, and you would read that in your encyclopedia. It is a fact. It is not someone's guess or someone's thought about it. Subjective is just the opposite about that. It is based on someone's personal opinions or their assumptions or their interpretations or their beliefs. So what happens is someone projects what they think onto something and then call that fact. And so it is up to that person and the another person may see it completely differently. They may read the exact same things and say, well, I, I don't see it that way. This is the way I feel about it. This is what I think about it. And that's when things become subjective. So you get that in blogs, as this said. And it said comments on the internet. And so I just turned that into a biblical thing. Commentaries. A Bible commentary, you picked it up. That's somebody's subjective opinion or view of something that is a fact. And so they ask this next question in this, and here's where it gets to. Is, is it suitable for decision making? When it comes down to you having to make a decision or do you put this in your article, is objective facts, objective truth, is that suitable for making a decision? Yes. Why? Because it is measurable. It is there. It is based upon fact. But what about is it, if it is subjective, is it good for making decisions? Not usually. Because what you think and what I think and what they think is not really the way it necessarily is. But when something is objective, that is the way it is, right? And so as we think about quarter two, and we are talking about when you look into a church that belongs to Jesus, what you should find is truth. What we are saying is that truth is measurable. It is based upon fact. It is objective. It is not up to you, it is not up to me, it is not up to Michael, it is not up to anyone but Jesus as to what is in fact a fact. And so I want to look this morning at three benefits of truth being objective, that it is in fact 
a fact. And I promise I will stop saying, in fact, a fact at some point. I just don't know when that's going to happen because I hadn't even heard the phrase in my head. But anyway, nevertheless, I want to begin as we're here in John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, 15, and 16, Jesus has a very intimate conversation with his disciples. And I believe a lot of the things that are said in John 14, 15, and 16 are specifically for the apostles. Such as the passage that was just read for us here in chapter 14. But the first thing that I want to point out about a benefit of truth being objective is that it is universal. It is for everyone because truth comes from one source. And so you would see in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, this person that Jesus is going to send, this helper, this Holy Spirit as we just read, but as would be called in chapter 16, the Spirit of truth, the one who was going to give the truth, it's all coming from one source, and that is coming from that spirit of truth, from Jesus, from the Father. But it's all being passed down, and I want you just to draw back to chapter 14 here as we just read, and notice again verse 26, that the Holy Spirit, the Helper, He would remind the disciples of all the things that Jesus did in their presence, but also notice that he would teach them all things. Everything that they needed to know would be there. I want you to notice back in chapter 16, flat forward to chapter 16. Notice verse 13 where this uh, is brought into, the spirit of truth. Verse 13 there. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you. And again, I believe that is the the apostles. He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He speaks, whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. You see, what the disciples are told is that when this Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. Every single bit of it. I want you to notice what else the Spirit would do, this Helper would do. Go back in the verses previous uh, here in chapter 16. Go up just a little bit further in verse 8. He's called the Helper in verse 7. He says in verse 8, when He comes, He will do what? What is the first thing He is going to do? Convict the world of sin. You see, he's not going to convict the Jews. He's not going to convict the Americans. The spirit of truth will convict the entire world that they have sinned. Because the truth, all truth, is for all people on all parts of this world. You know, there was a part when it wasn't always exactly like that. Where there was one thing for this nation, and there were other things for the other nations in one sense. I want you to go to Acts the 17th chapter. I want you to notice something that I find very interesting. In Acts the 17th chapter, Paul was on Mars Hill, and he's going through, and remember that's when they got all those idols, and they've got the ones of the unknown God, and he talks to them about that. And he comes to a conclusion in verse 29 that God is not like us. 
He's not a bird. He's not gold. He's not silver. He's not anything like that. But I want you to notice what is said in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. There was a time in which people, they didn't necessarily know, they didn't necessarily understand, and God somewhat overlooked that. We can talk about that in another discussion if you so desire, but that's not the point of this lesson. The point of this lesson is notice how that is contrasted. But now. It's like previously there was one something going on, but now, notice what the case is, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. <laughs> and notice how He says, He could have just left it at all people. He commands all people. But notice how the emphasis is put. He commands all people everywhere. Whether you are in Israel, whether you are in Athens, Greece, whether you are in Africa, China, wherever, what He commands now in the time of the apostles is the same for all people that they repent. It's universal of that. And so the beauty of that is that when something is universal, it can be taught in all the churches. Whether it is in Athens, Greece, or whether it is in those other places, it's taught in all the places. So notice how many times Paul tells the Corinthians about how often he teaches the same thing in every church. Go to chapter 4 of the book of 1 Corinthians. Because remember, those apostles, and we would learn from Acts the ninth chapter, that Paul was specifically chosen to be a vessel for Jesus. He would call himself an apostle many different times, and we could see that. But notice in chapter 4 and verse 17 of 1 Corinthians, that he says, let me tell you why I sent Timothy to you. My beloved and faithful child in the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ. And here's the phrase. As I teach them everywhere in every church. When Paul goes to one church, he doesn't teach anything different. When Peter goes to one church, he doesn't preach anything different. When Jude says, contend earnestly for the faith that was once delivered to the saints, they don't go teach a different gospel. In fact, if anyone teaches another gospel, let him be accursed, Galatians chapter 1. There is no other gospel. There's only one thing it's taught in every single church. Notice how he points that out again in chapter 7. In chapter 7, when it comes to how people ought to conduct their lives and various things, notice verse 17, he says, Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is my rule, or this is what I set up in every church. It's the same every single place that you go. And so we have in chapter 14, in our verse that we used last quarter, that God is not the author of confusion or disorder, but rather He is a God of peace. But then notice there in verse 33 how the verse ends. As in all the churches of the saints. It's just there over and over all. It's in every single one that they're teaching this same truth. 
And so Paul references something he taught in another church. Go to chapter 16. We use this all the time in 16 and verse 1 with the collection. Now concerning the collection for the saints. Notice who first got that direction. As I directed or set up, it's the same word as our rule set up back in chapter 7, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you. When we think of the Galatians, we probably think of like the Corinthians 1 church. But the book of Galatians was written to the churches of Galatia. There were various churches in that region And what he taught in one church in that region was the same thing he taught in another church in that region and another church in that region and the same thing that he's teaching to the Corinthians. Why? Because the truth is universal to all mankind no matter where they're at. We got that, right? The second benefit, now you say, now why is that a benefit? Well, because guess what? It can be taught everywhere. The only thing that changes is the language. The words are still the same. The language is the only thing that changes. It's still there. And so it's easy for people to be able to give it all throughout and not have to make modifications to it. You don't have to adjust it for this culture over here or that culture over there. You just go in and you just say what it is and the culture has to modify itself. Or as it stated a little earlier in Acts chapter 17 and verse 10, that that world has to turn itself upside down. When the truth comes to town, everything that it was already said on is flipped on its head. Not the gospel is flipped on its head for the culture. That's not the way it is. It's for all of us. The second benefit. And I really got to think about this last week when Michael was talking about the guy that was going around with his little torch in the middle of the day looking for, can I find one honest man? And I thought about that feeling of if you've ever been out to gain something or you were looking for something or you were working hard on something and you just couldn't attain it. You just couldn't get it. It was impossible for you to do it. How disheartening that is after all of that effort you put into it. I think about Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes and the effort that he put in to understand the world without God and how empty he felt because he finally came to the conclusion, you know what, I have to have God in this. The truth is that objective truth is attainable for all people. I want you to go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. It applies to all people. It is universal. But yet, God expects men to come to the conclusion, to come to the truth. Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it's the the passage where we talk about prayer. That we are to pray for all men, especially kings and those in authority. But notice verse 3. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved, and notice this phrase, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Not only does God want me and you and all people to be saved, He wants and expects that we can be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He doesn't ask us to do something we can't do. It's not like some search 
that we go out on that there is no answer to the truth. Is Jesus really the Messiah? Is He really the Christ? Is God really God? We'll talk about that more in a second. But all these questions you can find. It is attainable. Quite frankly, God expects and God wants people to come to it. But men don't usually want to do that all the time. Look at chapter 6 of the same book in 1 Timothy. That at the end of verse 2, Timothy is told to eat, to teach, to teach and urge the things that Paul had taught. Because in verse 3, notice, because if anyone teaches a different doctrine, and he does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, if you're teaching anything different than what Jesus said, that person is puffed up with conceit, and he understands nothing. He's all about himself. And I want you to notice verse 5. That there is constant friction among these people And these would be these false teachers who are depraved in mind, corrupt in mind. And then notice this phrase. And they are deprived or destitute of the truth. You have to look into that word and I had Michael look it up because I thought it was one way and I turned out to be right. But it's relatively confusing. Apparently what is happening is that these people who are teaching other doctrines... They are withholding the truth. They have the truth. They have the knowledge of what is right, but they are withholding it from the people in which they are teaching. Which is usually what happens with false teachers, isn't it? They give you a little bit of truth, and they throw in either a little bit of error or a lot of error, depending on how you want to say that. But they don't tell you everything they know. And for whatever reason, we give false teachers the benefit of a doubt. Like, oh, oh, those TV evangelists, they just don't understand. They just haven't come to the truth yet. Oh, no, they've come to the truth. They just withhold it. And so they get all these people to follow them, and they get all these people, and they think that they are following the truth, but yet they are not because it is being withheld from them. But yet back in chapter 2, what does God expect? He expects all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. He wants that. But he knows that there are people out there that are making it hard to come to the truth. And they're not doing it. Some people are doing it maybe unintentionally. But a lot are not doing it unintentionally. And so it falls on us, right, as individuals. Am I out there trying to find what really is the truth? Or am I just taking whatever is being taught to me, hook, line, and sinker? So you think, well, man, there are some people, they, they, they just don't, they didn't get a fair shake in life. They didn't raise, they weren't raised going to church, even if it was a denomination. They weren't raised going to church. They weren't raised doing anything. So, like, how are they supposed to come to a knowledge even that there is a God? You should go to Romans chapter 1. In fact, actually, I want to see it from Acts 17. Go to Acts 17. Remember that very passage that we used a minute ago about how God commands all people everywhere to repent? I want you to notice what was said even before that, in that same conversation, in verse 26. That this same God who made everything, He made from one man, that would be Adam, 
every nation of mankind. See, that's partly why it's all universal, because it all starts with one person. We're all kin in one way, because it all started, and so therefore it is universal. So he made from every man, or from every nation of mankind, to live all on the face of the earth. And notice this, allotting determined periods and boundaries of their dwelling places. What God did is He set up time and He set up places where you can live. There are things that He set up. He ordered the world, the earth, in such a place that notice verse 27, why He did that. That they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. You see, when God designed this world, He designed it in such a way that even people that weren't aware of Him would look for Him and be able to find Him. And that may be some of you. But I'll tell you, that's not what the majority of mankind does. majority of mankind does not look for their way to God and find Him They find Him, and I want you to notice in chapter 1 of the book of Romans, the passage that I referenced a moment ago, that people, in verse 18, that the wrath of God will be against in all their unrighteousness and all their ungodliness. Who by, at the end of verse 18, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth? For... What can be known about God is plain or evident to them. Because God has shown it to them. See, that's what happens a lot of times when we come to know something. We want to act like we don't know it. And isn't there the phrase, once you know something, you can't unknow it? Especially when it comes to these religious things that really get to the core of what I need to do to be right or wrong. Man, it was ignorance is bliss. But once you come to the knowledge, and he says all men come to that knowledge, you got to do something with it. And so, out of sight, out of mind. You're telling me this, I'm not going to listen to it. I don't want to hear that. And you feel it start to come up and you're really thinking about it as you're laying in bed and you say, oh man, that was a really good game tonight. And you're jumping all over the place because you don't want to come to the knowledge of the truth. But the truth is sitting there just screaming and pushing up like that ball under underwater that over time, as soon as you let it go, boom, it comes to the surface. And you've got to deal with it. That's a benefit. It's because it's not up to you or me to decide about it. It's just like, I've got to deal with it. Just like every other human on the planet has to deal with it. So we're not unique. It is attainable for us to come to that knowledge. I want to close with the third and final thing. That if it is for everyone... And then it is attainable for everyone. That means that life is also fair because of that. You see, when we have to stand before God, He'll be right. He'll be fair. I want you to notice how there are no excuses. 
I like excuses. Man, I was tired, I was sick, I didn't know, all the different things. No one has excuses. These people in verse 20, at the end of verse 20, that they had it shown to them, even though they worshipped all of these other gods and everything, they understood God. He said, at the end of the verse, verse 20, they are without excuse. Why? For although they knew God, they did not honor Him or give thanks to Him. I want you to think about that. They can't plead ignorance. We knew. Or I knew that I should have done this or that, or I looked into this or that or that, but I like this better. They knew God. And God says you got no excuse about that. Then notice how some of the other things are said about them. Look down in verse 25. That these people, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They had it in their possession like I went to the store and I bought some table, uh, some table covers. And I put them back and I exchanged them for the ones that actually fit my table. They were the wrong size, the wrong color. We exchanged them. We had the good and we exchanged. We, we had it in our possession is the point. And what did they have? The truth. And what did they get in return? I give that up. For a lie. We don't like to be lied to, do we? Especially if we know someone is doing it for their benefit and to hurt us. And the truth is, when we exchange that truth about God for a lie, we're hurt. We are done about this. And then notice chapter 2. Oh, man. So what about you people that are religious? You people that came from Israel in chapter 3, verse 1. Jews got some advantage, but chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You people know the law. You know what God says. And you know about God. And you're passing judgment on these people that don't know God, that you think don't know God. But yet, you're doing the exact same things that they're doing. What good does that do you? You're just doing the same things, except the only difference is you've got a book that's re- that you're reading right in front of you and you're pointing your finger saying, I'm better than you are. And I tell you, man, that's no good. He says you've got no excuse when you stand before God. But notice the benefit of that. Verse 6 of the same chapter of Romans 2. He will render to each one According to his work. Does that make you feel good or bad? Like, I'm pretty glad that I don't have to answer for anyone else besides myself. Because the only person that I can control is myself. Right? That's a, that's a little bit comforting to me. And it's comforting, especially if I'm like the group in verse 7, to those who by patience and well-doing they seek for glory and honor and immortality and He'll give eternal life. If I'm looking for the right things in life, if I'm seeking the right things in life, it's a great comfort that God is going to reward me of that. But notice verse 8. But those who are self-seeking, but those who do not obey the truth, whatever it is, 
They choose not to obey it, but rather this unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. Notice how he throws it in there. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first. The one who knows. And also the Greek. Guess what? God shows no partiality for those who don't obey Him. Jew or Greek. Chapter 1 verse 16 says the gospel is the power to save, right? For the Jew first and also the Greek. It's for everyone again. But it can save, but just as easy can be condemned. Because notice again verse 11. God shows no partiality. It doesn't matter. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all people everywhere. So remember back to our spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, one of the things He was going to do to the world. He was going to convict the world of sin. Notice how Paul brings this in as we close out in Romans chapter 3. In chapter 3, man, so... If I'm a Jew, what what good was it? Oh, man, there's a lot of good. I got the law. I had the best opportunity to come to Jesus. But notice how the law says over and over that there's no one who's right. Notice verse 6. He mentions that God is going to judge the world. Now notice verse 9. No, I want to pick on verse 8. He says, why not do evil that good may come? And some slanderously charge us with saying... Their condemnation is just. What is happening is people are saying, well, if everyone is sinning and God's righteousness and God's goodness is brought out by sin, why is everyone still being judged? Well, the answer is because, notice verse 9 and verse 10. Are the Jews any better off? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it's written, In the Old Testament, none are righteous, no, not one. Doesn't matter, Jew, Greek, none of us are right. None of us have always been right. And why did he do it that way? Verse 19. Because we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And we might even say that that law they might even be referring to would be that Old Testament law that he's quoting from there. But it could be just a larger law in general. But notice what he says there about law. He says this law is there so that every mouth may be stopped and the phrase, the whole world may be accountable to God. That's just all there is to it. Is that it's fair that Truth is truth. God shows no partiality. And it's fair because, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And they are all justified by His grace, by His favor, and as a gift, how? Through the redemption of Jesus Christ. Truth is, no man can do anything on his own without you and without God. And God is going to be fair in condemning those of us who don't obey the truth because we knew it and we suppressed it. We knew it and we didn't obey it. And it was evident to us. 
And it was evident to everyone. So the truth is, when it comes to how we determine truth in the church, we don't determine. It's already been determined. And that can give us comfort that it's good for any church that I ever go to. I can come to it. I can reach it. And then God is going to deal with me fairly based on my ability to do all of those things. To me, that's comforting. To me, that is objective. This morning, maybe you've not become a Christian. Maybe you're ready to commit your life to Christ and you're ready to be saved from your sins. And you want to be baptized into Him so that you can have that new life that is talked about in Romans chapter 6. Or maybe you need to get some things together and you need the prayers of the congregation. We ask that you would come now as we stand and as we